The podcast for the inquisitive diver. To start with, I've got to go. <laughs> Two and a half years, I think it is, since we've been trying to get you on this podcast, and now you're here at last. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I say it was only work related. I know. My one year old daughter would say otherwise. <laughs> How is she? Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, she's really good. She's walking, talking machine. Um, she is like unstoppable, that girl. I don't know. <laughs> um, so she's taking after her dad then for her talking. Oh my God, yes, absolutely. Uh, definitely takes after her dad in talking. Um, determination, definitely me. Like she, if some, if that door won't open, she will get it open. <laughs> she will stay there and try and complain until that door opens. So, yeah, I kind of love that about her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's really good. She's what, like almost 14 months now. Um, doing lovely, like, loves daycare. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and loves socializing. That's convenient for work then. Yeah, it <laughs> definitely is. Yeah. Yeah, she's doing really well. Thanks. Awesome sauce. Well, you'll have to come back over and uh, we'll have a barbecue at ours or something. Yeah. Now that everything's going a bit less crazy. Yeah. Happy days. Um, well, if we're gas bagging away, <laughs> let's tell everyone who you are. Welcome to the show. Um, hello. So I am Dr. Jen Matthews. I'm a coral biologist and metabolomicist, and that is essentially looking at metabolism. Um, so I started my kind of underwater adventure in the sunny island of Koh Tao, where <laughs> you know that very well. Uh, so I went for a holiday after I finished my undergraduate um, in biology at Bath University, uh, just to kind of get away after I'd finished. And I, um, I went for two weeks and to learn how to dive. And I ended up staying four years. <laughs> and um, so it was during my underwater, under, yeah, my first underwater um uh what's it called your open uh like, uh, the, paddy... like open water I open that. water course. yeah open water course mm. my gosh <laughs> that's how long ago it's been and how much um so yeah i did my first open water course um and it was i i loved the diving kind of side of it in the pool i really really liked it and um in between going in the pool to the next day going out in the open water my friends who I was meant to meet there emailed me to say that they weren't going to be able to make it anymore. And um, so I had a choice to make. Either I went traveling around Asia on my own or I went home kind of, or or, um, or I stayed in hotel. And so I started talking to one of the dive masters or instructors there and, and they mentioned this dive master program. And I was like, OK, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And before I'd even gone underwater, I was interested by this dive master course, the, the thought of staying on hotel for so long and dive Diving every day, I was like, "Oh, that sounds amazing!" So, uh, and traveling on my own, I wasn't really interested in it at the time. I'd, I'd done a lot of traveling on my own, and I was more—I wanted to do it with friends, I think, and around Asia as well, where it's a little bit un, uh, not always as safe for for girls to travel on their own. I thought, "Oh, well, maybe I'll just stay here then." Mm. Uh, and then I went underwater, and um, yeah, it was kind of sold <laughs> to me, and then um, ended up doing my dive master and then during that course so i'd obviously done my undergraduate in biology and had a strong focus in conservation uh-huh. and um there's always been a fundamental kind of value of mine is um ecosystem conservation and um and biology and i thought what can i get involved in on kotao in relation to kind of conservation work and the dive school that i was at 
big blue diving. They um, didn't have a conservation uh, presence um, beyond a couple of instructors who were kind of leading the way. Mm. Um, and so I spoke to the manager and um, kind of floated the idea of maybe starting off a marine conservation organization. And that's what we did. So then I founded Big Blue Conservation, which is, yeah, what was it, 2010? I did that. So it's now still running, I believe, and mm-hmm. um, doing amazing work. And I was there for four years kind of thinking that way and but I found um after a while the research side of it I wasn't really able to do on a small island like hotel because I didn't have access to lab facilities and so I did my master's um with some samples I collected from hotel but I had to do that back in the UK so I did my master's in Imperial College London um in ecology evolution and conservation and decided I, I wanted to pursue a PhD. So that took me to New Zealand and away from Kotal. Mm. And um, I did a PhD on looking at coral relationships or coral partnerships and metabolism. It kind of got me into that area. Um, and now I am um, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, in the Future Reefs group of the Climate Change Cluster. At, C- um, at UTS. Yeah. Uh, I've been there for f- four years, mm-hmm. almost, um, three and a half years. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've just uh, uh, been awarded a UTS Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellowship. So I will be there for another four years um, teaching and researching. Excellent yeah. news. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's funny, how, I mean, just listening back to that, because I never knew that you started Big Blue Conservation. Oh, yeah, because when I rocked up, you were already there. Yes, yeah. And it, you were in place. I just assumed you were the Current. the one of many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was there was a lot of resistance at first, actually, which is not which is there was resistance from a few different people, but it, there were other people who were really keen to see changes. Then one of them being Jim, the manager, mm. and that was what spurred me on really yeah. was his passion behind it and and um yeah there was resistance in terms of the people who are already doing conservation on the island i think felt a little bit perhaps threatened maybe don't put this in <laughs> um yeah. but yeah it well it's, just, it's it's the unknowing isn't it you know if you've got something that's a very small community and i think so someone comes you along to do girl. what you're doing as well yeah. and and got the qualifications to boot yeah and um you get a young girl coming in going with, um, oh, you know, I've just learned this in my studies and all that kind of thing. So, of course, um, the seasoned islanders perhaps would be a bit resistant. And mm. it was a business as well at the end of the day. So um, you're stealing or you're, you're sharing a customer base, aren't you? So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, in the end, when I left, it was much more of an um, open culture I yeah suppose. yeah i think things progressed very well mm-hmm. um i know by the time i think uh in fact it was the penultimate year i was there there was a lot of the dive schools coming together and, and getting involved together for for cleanups and yeah. you know good community work i think the urgency for action perhaps was a driver for that mm. seeing it was so 2010 was one of the first bleaching events okay. uh one of the first i say sorry that's absolutely wrong what I mean by that, it was one of the major mass coral bleaching global events. Um, and there were multiple ones before that, of course, but this one was 
particularly huge. And another thing was it was only a few years prior that there had already seen some bleaching. So it was starting to become apparent that coral bleaching was getting more and more um, common. I should explain what coral bleaching is. Go for it. So so corals are complex organisms um, and meta-organisms, something we call a holobiont, which is made up of all different kinds of species. So corals are actually jellyfish, related to jellyfish. And um, you have the coral animal host, which has colourless see-through tissues. And uh, within the coral host lives a tiny plant called algae. And that algae is the powerhouse for corals, providing it with the majority of nutrients it needs through photosynthesis, which is the process that plants use to generate energy as well as the oxygen that we breathe. Um, and so the coral uh, kind of leverages off this, metabolizes these nutrients that the algae produces. And in return, the algae gets a nice safe place to live. Nothing can eat it inside the coral. Yeah. Um, and as well as the coral and the algae, there's bacteria and fungi and viruses and other protists which are all contributing to the health of this coral holobiome. Coral reefs are like shopping centres. Uh, and if you think of the shopping centre as being in an entire reef, within a shopping centre you've got multiple shops and those are your corals. Mm-hmm. And within each shop you've got brightly coloured clothes and um, other items for sale and they are the things that fuel that shop and keep that shop open. Mm-hmm. As well, you've got security cameras and stuff that are protecting the shop and that is the bacteria providing protection. Okay. The algae is the brightly coloured clothes providing colour to the shop and um, and all these shops work together to make a functioning shopping center mm-hmm. so all these corals work together to make a functioning ecosystem or functioning reef so the microalgae that live within the corals are really essential for a number of different reasons but one of the primary um, factors is that they can help the coral withstand changes in their environment so if the water gets too hot for example what happens is that relationship's breaks down and they no longer are friends and the coral loses its algae and because the algae provide the coral with the beautiful colors that you see without that algae the coral turns white which is what we know as coral bleaching so is it the algae that's dying from the temperature that change or it's actually so there's a number of different things that happen and these um the exact process is still unclear um but whether it's that the coral expels the algae, the algae dies within the coral tissue, or the algae hides further within the coral and in the skeleton, um, or whether the algae just decides it doesn't want to live there anymore and, and rather than being expelled, it fights tries to escape the coral tissue. Okay. Um, whatever probably more complex and integrated reasons of those, um, essentially the coral loses the algae out of its... Um, tissues and it doesn't have that source of nutrients anymore so the coral's not dead it's just without food mm-hmm. and without its main food source and so like you and i if we didn't eat for a while that would make us very unhealthy make us more prone to infections um and if we didn't get food soon then we would die and exactly the same happens for corals if they don't get their algae back if the temperatures of the water don't decrease within a certain length of time then their corals won't survive and they die or they succumb to things like infections or other pressures and is it um uh, you you say about the, the the time between losing the algae and dying does it does it differ depending on the um the, the coral species? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, different 
between species within species really? in terms of bleaching um, and that is the question that has been driving coral biology and research for probably the last 50 years is why do we get this with between and within species difference mm. and you can have one species in one location that doesn't perform very well in hotter waters and you have that same coral species in a different latitude and it does perform really well when the conditions change mm. so these and the mechanisms we're trying hard and desperately to understand so that we can better predict how corals might respond to the ever-increasing temperatures of our oceans. Mm. Mm. Ever-increasing. Um, what's, your, what, what's your take on all the gossip that's going on at the moment Weird. with the, the temperatures rising and, you know... Gossip! I'm not going oh. to jump on the politicians <laughs> back again, but... Um, they seem to poo-poo it and aim for 2050 and uh, say all the good words but do nothing. Well, yeah, isn't that just politics? <laughs> um, well, I think that there was this amazing infographic that NASA released recently that showed that the temperatures are not just increasing year on year, but they're increasing around the year as well. So temperatures in the coolest part of our year here in in the middle of July in Australia, where it's meant to be coolest, it's still hotter than it was last year and the year before that and the year before that. So even the colder t months are getting warmer. Gotcha. Uh, so there's, so then you can think about the 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 hotter months; they're becoming even more extreme, yeah. and the corals and other marine organisms are getting no reprieve because the waters are still higher than they should be um, yeah. throughout the year. So yeah, I mean, it's I'm not gonna start a political debate <laughs> because i don't really um know enough about the i can't comment on the on the politics side of it i yeah. guess i can say I, um from the scientific sense of things mm. there is no question that climate change is occurring whether you question as to how it's occurring i'm not getting involved in that argument but the scientific side of it shows there is climate change and that is widely accepted across the scientific community there is no debate about that yeah. um so yeah i kind of get a little bit confused on the, the the temperature difference uh for catastrophic failures of the oceans what's your take on it all so there's um the ipcc which is the international panel for climate change uh they they go off this scale of representative concentration pathway. It's essentially a greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and a trajectory. And they have a few different levels. One's that if there was no increase, one that if there was slight increase from our current state, and then the more drastic levels. Mm. And what you'll see in terms of corals is that the bleaching events that were once rare or... Um, at least infrequent, are happening every year. And the uh, other factors as play, that means that they are unable to rebuild fast enough than they're degrading. Right. Uh, for example, ocean acidification is one of the things. And that is essentially that the sea is becoming more and more acidic. Yeah. And um, if you put a skeleton or a, you know your tooth in a acidic in, in vinegar for example your tooth degrades over the time so and you can't really build teeth in vinegar 
right? So the exact same things happens when the ocean of the ocean becomes too acidic. Then you get um, corals, they're skeletons, exactly like yours and ours. Mm -hmm. They have the same calcium carbonate skeleton and they the skeletons degrade and then they are unable to deposit new skeleton and grow. So there's all these different impacts that greenhouse gases have beyond just temperature um so anyway so if we continue at the current project trajectory then we will see a significant loss in coral cover by 2050 to the point where we're talking extinction level events um we don't want to let it get that far really so we're desperate to try to intervene to protect the species diversity as well as um cover because there's so many things that depend on coral reefs we are intimately connected to Mm. coral reefs we rely on them as a source of protein they offer billions of dollars and millions of jobs to like 100 countries around the world even in the in australia for example um a study by Deloitte revealed that the Great Barrier Reef is something like $56 billion in economic value. And that's not the iconic and and um, traditional owner asset side of it. It's not even the iconic side of it. The the actual economic value of the Great Barrier Reef is $56 billion. And and that's what we would lose. Not only are they economic value and um, a source of protein, but they provide coastal protection. And anybody in Sydney right now would probably, or across the... um, east coast of australia finding all these storms hitting our Mm. shores and all the devastation that that's causing corals can provide a buffer for wave action and they can slow down wave action so we would lose that storm protection and they are an important source for medicines in fact we've discovered medicines for alzheimer's cancer um bacterial infections and and you know with things like covid now COVID is now integrated into our society. We need that source of potential new medicines, and we would lose that if we lost coral reefs. So we need to stop this catastrophic loss. But how do you do that? Because you've got so many different factors affecting corals. Where do you start? Yeah. And there's no history. There's no like, um, um, you know. There's no reference sheet, no, is there? There's no reference. There's no nothing that's happened like this before in our lifetime that we can go, oh, we're lessons learned. Why don't we just do that? So there's so many different projects and some crazy, amazingly inventive projects um, happening in Australia and around the world to try to mitigate some of those effects. But um, the bottom line is, unless we reduce our carbon emissions and bring climate change to a manageable level and then it's all just buying time for corals mm, mm. i kind of floated past and we we're talking with kate last week um kate parker i don't know whether you know she's sea shepherd lady she started uh, daughters of the deep um and we were on the subject of you know climate change all that kind of stuff and i i kind of i'm of the opinion nowadays that we're kind of on on the path of destruction and that destruction is going to occur at some point in the future and I honestly don't believe we can change that now, but what we can do, well, we can't prevent it, but we can change it by delaying that onset. Mm. I think at some point in the future, long past us and maybe the next generation as well, but um, I think it's going to occur at some point. I think it's so easy to be pessimistic in mm. these situations, but I am definitely a environmental optimist and um, I like to think that we will, that the... 
um, thoughts of our generation will power forwards and changes will happen. Yeah. You just need, I mean, it's just, if you compare the actions that are in place today versus five, ten years ago, mm. and the voice of the climate change deniers today versus five, ten years ago, I think that you really have seen a shift, especially with the new generation coming through. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that it's not, <laughs> I'd like to think my job is not a waste of time. And that oh, no. hopefully that we, um, we will see corals. No. They might not be the coral reefs that we know today, but I imagine that we will see um, corals. Corals are like 700 million years old. Yeah. Um, they will, they have outlived a number of extinction events. They will outlive us, but it's up to us to, preserve our own species and as i say we were so intimately connected and reliant on coral reefs and sure they're out of sight and out of mind for many people but they are there and they are con- like intricate keystone ecosystem engineers and yeah. we we need to do stuff to help them <laughs> i think that's, i think you, you touched on the subject there I think one of the big problems is that it's out of sight, out of mind, because people can't see beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. They'll see photos and little videos on TikTok and all this kind of stuff, amazing-looking reefs, Mm -hmm. and think that's beautiful. But if they actually, you know, even if you drained the oceans for a day just so Mm -hmm. people could go to the beach of their own country and have a look what's there, Mm. I think they'd be astounded. Yeah. Well, I think if you ask most people what coral is, they'll say it's a rock. Yeah. But it's it's not. It's an animal. Yeah. It's... Um, a plant, a mineral, and everything else as well. But uh, yeah, it, that's one of the problems, and that's one of the things that I um, and colleagues of mine are really trying to do is bring it to bring the reefs to people. So through um, effective science communication and um, events like the Ocean Lovers Festival in Bondi um, and. Uh, Soapbox Science Sydney, these kind of um, events are showcasing some of the researchers, um, the work that they do. And um, even in the Northern Beaches, there's the Ocean Festival. Yeah. Um, are you, sitting, you, you must be in a great position being at the university, seeing the kids come through, I say kids, young adults, <laughs> coming through that are as, as keen as mustard to actually make a change because we are in that exciting time, and I was pessimistic earlier on, but we are in that exciting time where we're changing from, you know, partly online and partly written and spoken to much more the generation behind us and, be, and behind them is more and more digital. So mm. everything is open to the public, and I can only imagine those kids that are coming through now are going to be doing much more online and raising that awareness probably better than what we could mm-hmm. yeah well sustainability is not just in you know taught in science it's taught in engineering and mm-hmm. um you know so in business especially at uts there's a it's sustainability is a fundamental value for uts and so um yeah, it's not just scientists who have that in their sights, mm. which is really nice to see. Um, and the, but the, you know, something since I did my PhD and since I, uh, started my studies is that now you're seeing more, um, focus on impact and outputs and actual physical outputs. So it's not just, okay, well, the coral and it's algae, they do this. It's how can we use this to, to 
inform conservation strategies and um, help safeguard the future of reefs? Like, how, how can we use this knowledge now and how can we apply it? And that's really nice um, and exciting. Mm. It's super exciting. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I, I remember some when I started off in corals and, and you know, um, people seeing them die and hearing hearing about masses of losses of corals around the world they say oh well will you have a job in a few years time and i'm desperately fighting for it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but i think yeah there's a like we we can't afford not to say so. exactly yeah if we ignore it then it does yeah. really go down the pessimistic route <laughs> yeah hey i know what i wanted to ask you yes a few years ago when i was i in fact it was back in 2018 and i was taking the group into Papua New Guinea, we were discussing a coral that you were getting all excited about, and I can't remember what it was. You said it was it was on the GBR, and you'd kind of seen um, this is sightings uh, like coming down this way, yeah. Yeah, so there is, I think it was about, there's a photographer um, and called John Sear, who... Um, 2013 i believe first sighted these um corals in sydney and corals had sorry sydney's had corals um uh, for for a long time but they've been very small kind of non-reef building corals they've been encrusting corals uh the species is plesiastra verispora and and it's um <laughs> it, that's kind of cosmopolitan coral it stretches all the way down to um the very south end of of australia so it's that's quite a temperate coral it does extend down those regions but this new coral this um coral that has come down from the north is called Possilopera alitiae. Um, and so, or Possilopora, if you would like, Possilopora alitiae, Possilopora alitiae, and it is a subtropical coral. Um, so, Previously, the southern ranges were expected, were assumed to be around the solitary islands. And they, John Sear found uh, some co colonies in, in Sydney. And it was first assumed, oh, well, they, they weren't asked. You know, they're probably not going to be there. But then we started to see some subtropical fish inhabiting them <laughs> and some crabs inhabiting them. So this raised the question, are these harmless refugees seeking cooler waters from the Great Barrier Reef or are these invasive alien species that are going to damage the existing ecosystem because Sydney has some incredible ecosystems like seagrass ecosystems as well as those existing corals that I mentioned um, and you know this is what has been in Sydney for centuries so the uh, sudden invasion, uh, if you would, of this new coral, then is this good? Are they, they, are they friend or foe? Are they going to help increase the biodiversity? Are they going to help provide a, is it going to be the start of a refuge for corals, for other subtropical corals? Um, is Sydney going to be the new home of the Great Barrier Reef? I'd heard, you know, like these are really important questions that we need to answer, um, whether bad or good. And, um, yeah, so some work that um, I've been involved in, um, I was very, um, uh, very glad to receive a Paddy Foundation grant, as well as a Royal Zoological Society of New South Wales, Ethel Mary, Ethel, I can't remember the name of it, 
grant, um, and both of these um, grants helped support some research to look at whether the invasive coral and the existing species of coral, if they came to hit heads, which one would survive? And we looked at that under normal temperatures or normal summer temperatures, um, and then we looked at it under the future projected temperatures. And we saw two different things. We saw, first of all, that the invasive coral survives better and survives, full stop, the higher water temperatures um, than the native coral species. So that's a really important finding because if waters continue to get warmer, then we may lose the existing species and, and those new invasive species will become more prevalent because they've got nothing to compete with. Yeah. Um, but we also saw we put them close together and um, have some fantastic videos of them essentially fighting each other. So when corals, um, as I mentioned, they're animals, so they, mm-hmm. they have the ability to fight. And what they do is they have, so uh, a coral is made up of uh, hundreds of little polyps, which are mouths, essentially, a little individual polyps are like if you turn a t- jellyfish upside down and the tentacles are sticking up and then inside is the mouth in the middle. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they spit out their stomach and the stomach comes in these really long fibers called mesential fibers. And they, when they hit something that they want to attack, then they essentially degrade it from the on the outside and then they suck it all back in all their stomach back in so it's really really gross um <laughs> but the native coral has really big mouths yeah. the invasive coral has very small mouths so who do you think won well i'm gonna go with, <laughs> i'm gonna go with a little fella yeah the, oh no the opposite the native one oh, won really? so even and even when we raise the temperatures a little bit mm. the native one still managed to outcompete the invasive one so oh. that's really interesting so that will mean that Although if temperatures raise beyond that threshold of that that native one can withstand, mm. then they're still, uh, unless they do be extend beyond that threshold, then they're probably going to live in harmony, I guess, if you would. Um, because there's another aspect I should say that they are not necessarily found in the same depth of water. So they don't really come close to each other. Okay. Um so, but if they did, if this if this invasive stock coral started to really try to branch out, <laughs> excuse the pun, um, then um, it it might come into contact with these ones. But that's okay because the the, the native one can apparently fight it, defend itself yeah. well enough. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so we're just publishing that at the moment, or it's just been accepted. So that's really exciting because that work will be out. But that work has now sped um, or fueled some other research from it because we want to know this these population of this subtropical coral that exists at the moment in the solitaries, and then there's some down here in Sydney. Mm. What is its southern range? What is its most southern range? And this is something that we're trying to call on dive centres to report port if they ever see these corals and we can find the most southern corals but also we're running kind of um some experiments alongside whether to uh, to to find out the cold extreme but also the heat extreme because there's a really interesting question that if these corals have come down from the north do they maintain that heat tolerance that they might experience at higher at lower latitudes where the water's warmer um at high latitudes do they maintain that heat tolerance or do they lose it but does is the cold tolerance better in populations at higher latitudes or further south than the ones at lower latitudes? Yeah, yeah. So these are really important questions that uh, master's student Laura Lamotta is um, answering at the moment at UTS. So 
Who's Laura, sorry? Laura Lomotta. She's my master's student. Uh, She's working at the moment at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, setting up an incredible um, system called a sea bass system, which is coral bleaching assay. (sighs) There's all these acronyms that you just call these acronyms the whole time. Um, It's not acronyms, it's Latin, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Sea bass is... Coral bleaching automated stress system. So, yes, yeah, she's using a coral bleaching automated stress system, which essentially um, we can turn the temperatures up really high and down really low and monitor the coral health throughout. And it means that we can see the kind of upper and lower tolerances. Mm. And do you, do you see quite a quick reaction when you change the temperatures? If the temperature is changed quickly, you see a quick reaction. If there's a long time stepping up, then you might see this kind of threshold where they'll bleach. Um, it's very dependent on the species and the individual, but perhaps it could be a, a, a 0.5 of a degree difference and they're okay and then they're not okay. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very, very, very subtle difference. I, I think it's fair to point out as well to people that are listening in that coral bleaching does occur naturally at times as well doesn't it yeah well it's always naturally it's like it is absolutely a natural process and it's not necessarily always a bad thing because if a coral with these these algal symbionts existing in corals um there's different there's hundreds and hundreds of different species of this algae and they each have different thermal tolerances as well as the ability to provide different levels of nutrients so there is a theory that is um called the adaptive bleaching hypothesis where if a coral bleaches maybe it gives the opportunity for a more heat tolerant species of of the algae to inhabit the coral and then in, in subsequent bleaching events then it um is more tolerant so that is a theory and that's something that we're looking at. But the mechanisms um, from my work anyway, especially in terms of the nutritional interactions, it suggests that there is um, an immune response to new symbiont species. Um, and that is not always favorable. But if the if given enough time, then they they could become favorable and, and they could establish a symbiosis. Or you might see co-evolution of the existing and by that, I mean um, the existing symbiont species is able to adapt to an th- increased thermal threshold and understand. But with all of these things, like this, these repeated bleaching events, while they're natural, there's, there's repercussions from that. And one of the biggest repercussions is reproduction. There's, without natural levels of reproduction, you don't get this genetic diversity or, um, or um, just mixing of, of gene pools in order to um, create new uh, corals, new baby corals and new adult corals that could potentially survive mm. heater, hot, hotter waters. And so the biggest problem with that is if you get bleaching, they're starving, right, during their bleaching. And if they're starving, they're using up all their resources. So they don't have any, if they do survive that bleaching event, they then don't have the resources to reproduce that year. So we're seeing a decline in the reproduction rate. Not only that, but then the surviving corals that do reproduce is, is often less. Um, and then of the eggs that are released, the survival rate is lower 
because the conditions are not favourable. Um, like the temperatures are too too warm or it's too acidic or um, they're having to battle with higher levels of macroalgal growth on the reef so they can't find a place to, to live. So one of the really, really important um, steps is to, to, to rebuild reefs is to increase the survivorship of larvae. If you can feed coral larvae, you can increase their survivorship. And I've just been awarded a pure ocean grant to investigate this potential and to take it from the lab to the reef and to generate a pathway and um, kind of almost like an SOP for managers around the world mm-hmm. to feed larvae and increase that survival rate because there's initiatives all over the world for example the sea core initiative they're they're helping um it's called uh, larval reseeding so um we reseed reefs with baby corals and they take um so less than one percent of of a coral's uh, spawn survives uh, corals larvae survive so what they do rather to help give them this fighting chance they you can increase that survivorship by taking the larvae when they've spawned either naturally on the reef or in a lab environment and then giving them a helping hand to mature into adult colonies giving them more space to settle where they're not going to be eaten by things or under controlled conditions in a lab environment or um directly onto the reef and um then putting those devices with uh, little mini baby corals when they're a little bit more resilient back onto the reef. This is larval reseeding, and that's great because it increases the genetic diversity back on reefs. It's nat- it's a natural process, so you're not intervening in any way, um, in a, like in a potentially risky way. You're essentially just helping them out with their reproductive success. It's just exactly the same that doctors do for us, yeah. right? And um, and this is, and it's such an easy process to do. It's so easy to to do it, and the methods are there, and they're readily available to go and um, you know, as long as you've found a coral that's about to spawn, capture the spawn, raise it in a in a lab environment or on the reef, and then put it back again. So, why is yeah, it, why why is it not a bit? Why has it not been done before? Because, um, oh, it has. So this is done. Larval reseeding is done and has been done for many years and even on a mass scale. So some of the research from the Southern Cross Institute, sorry, Southern Cross University, um, they've made these huge pontoons, um, that you, that, uh, like larvae, um, pools essentially to help mm-hmm. them. And they're, they're directly on the reef. So I was involved in this research a couple of years ago and we, Yes, we deployed these pontoons, essentially, these big nets and captured coral spawn slicks, which are on the surface of the water. And um, you keep them in these, like, pools, um, stopping things from eating them because, you know, it's basically like a larvae soup for (laughs) fish, which is delicious for fish. It's like a little fat lipid pool. Mm. Um, So... Give them a um, fighting chance in, at that stage and then release them when they start to find places to settle. So when larvae want to settle onto, by settle, I, I mean find somewhere to set up camp for yeah. their life. Um, and they start to swim down. So when they start to swim down, then we release them at the net and it gives, and, and directly onto the reefs and that gives them a, um, maybe a little kickstart. And there's some amazing success from that. So yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but what we want to do is that that survivorship is still really low, even with those interventions. It's still really low. So how do we improve that even more? And that's what this really exciting. I'm really very excited <laughs> by this new grant. Um, and uh, yeah, so we will be leading that research um, over the next couple of years. And hopefully one of the things that we want to produce from that, one of the important outputs is that it's readily available and easy to implement by all these groups who have existing larval reseeding projects. Mm. So that's a fundamental part of it is to create these um, accessible videos, almost uh, like documentary style kind of videos of how to do it from start to finish. So it's clear for people around the world to do it themselves um, because sharing that knowledge and sharing those techniques is essential if we're going to maintain or preserve our world's mm. reefs. So this is the, when you say that people around the world can do this. So they're going to have to be obviously te technically yeah. minded, have the facilities, all that kind of thing. Do you foresee that at some point in the future, something as simple as a dive centre, such as Big Blue or you know, Jarvis Bay diving, can do this as well? Big Blue could do this now. Absolutely, really? Big Blue could do larval reseeding, one hundred percent. Like the. Um, this, this is C, have a look at C-Core, but S-E-C-O-R-E. So they um, have released a um, blueprint for making these larvae collection nets and videos. And they were kind of this inspiration for me and as to that. I love how that's readily available and that you don't have to wade through scientific manuscripts and stuff to find out this information that it's because there's many, you know, reef managers around the world who a don't have access to those kind of scientific manuscripts but b it's just not their primary aim they just want to you know they're the, in the perfect position to implement these reef restoration methods and so we should make it easy for them yeah. to do that um so yeah so Secor released this really affordable and um easily kind of um readily sourceable locally kind of um local tools and and um parts i guess which, which sea core is it the first thing that comes up is honking great big tanker vessels s-e-a <laughs> s-e-c-o-r-e oh ah oh, yeah okay got it so sea core yeah how are doing some incredible work yeah. in that space and so it sounds for sexual coral reproduction it's what, sorry? It stands for Sexual Coral Reproduction. So, Is he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an international non-profit organization focused on coral reef conservation. Mm. And, you're, and you're working along with these guys? No, no, I wish. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. But what I want to do is um, they... You know, they do research, they do outreach, they do education and all in the name of coral reef restoration, right? So that's all values that underlie my research as well and my, my career. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, so one of the, so there, these are these pontoons. Is that, oh, that's the ones that, it looks like a big swimming pool, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 They do look like paddling pools with a, floating paddling pools with a mesh net yeah. underneath. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, research in that space has improved over the years, like shading them because they were kind of cooking in, in the oh, pools yeah. at first. So now they shade them and making it, um, possible for anybody anywhere around the world to, to build one of these things is another part of their 
fundamental goals. Um, it is literally like a dinghy that's got holes in the side to let the water flow through, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, so it's like an um, if it's like somebody opening their arms, letting the coral larvae float in, and then they close the arms to mm-hmm. um, keep the corals safe inside, and they can keep them in there and then put settlement devices, which are essentially just what look like. Oh, look like a little pyramid, um, pyramid with yeah. points, don't they? Pyramid with points. That's exactly yeah. Mm. And then they those can go when they've got settled coral on them and they've grown. Um, they can go back directly onto the reef. Okay. Um, so that's kind of giving them uh, the, the coral spawn a foundation to latch onto and start yeah. living. Start growing, yep. Start living, start depositing the little skeletons and making their association with essential algal symbionts, um, algal partners. That's where they can do that. Yeah. So. As long as they don't come across some opposition and start fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> It does happen. <laughs> yeah. um, you can get them yeah, growing very close together. But if they're from the same species, then it's less likely that you'll find that competition. Yeah. But, yeah. These larval slicks are hundreds of different species. So, yeah. yeah. How, do you, um, how do you rate what's going on at the moment with the storms? How that, how's that going to be impacting everything? In Sydney? Or Sydney, anywhere? East Coast. I mean, it's, it's mental, isn't it? So... I think it's hard to deny that these kind of extreme weather events are happening when you can see, like, two years ago we had fires. Last year we had floods. This year we have extreme floods. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's unfortunate for all the people who have been impacted by this and... It's devastating, isn't it, really? It's mm. absolutely devastating to see um, on a social and e- economic and ecological levels, on all of those kind of levels. Yeah. It's devastating to see. So, Do you think the, 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 the increase in mass of water is going to have any kind of effect on the local, the local reefs? Um, of our corals, yeah, I'm, I, and, but also the storm, those waves, so seven meter mm. waves. We were meant to go diving that day. I'm glad we didn't. Oh, but, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> we were meant to be going diving so that we could, um, take samples from those corals to find out if they're all from the same population or if they're from different populations. Mm. And, um, fortunately we couldn't get out there because of those big waves. So I hope they're still there when we go back. But yeah. so with the influx of rain, there's a few different things that happen. The runoff of water from the land into the ocean carries with it all the nutrients as well as chemicals from land. So, yeah. and the pollution. And that is obviously not very good for um, a coral reef. Mm. Um, so, and you get then you get algal blooms a few days later, and um, and all the bacteria as well that's that's growing in the water. Um, ask anyone who's been swimming recently how their ears are. Yeah. Um, it, all these ear infections and gastroenteritis infections that you're hearing about. That's all because of this. Um, these you know normally landlocked chemicals and bacteria are proliferate, proliferating in the ocean. Mm. Um, so yeah, the on on um, kind of. The effects going onwards, I'm sure we will see um, um, some unfortunate negative effects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the existing ecosystems. And and as well, as I mentioned, like this got fragile ecosystems like seagrasses. Um, and those waves would have destroyed some seagrasses. For so, sure. Um, yeah. 
hopefully we're over and done with for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it seems to subside, subsided a little bit. Ah, but, um, famous last words. I know. I went out before this. I, I legged it down to Chatswood to get some. I was picking up picking up some trainers actually for Dave Gatty. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, it was just honking down. Same yesterday, honking down, and then I had a little bit of a break today. Legged out. That's that's why I was melting when I got back here. Try and get in his trainers. <laughs> yeah, before it gets too. Yeah, before it gets too wet again yeah 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 but um hopefully it'll be um tidying up over in thailand as well it's just been um honking down over there for the last three days as well so i was reading um i mean i'm not a meteorologist or anything i don't really like weather systems are beyond my area of expertise (laughs) but i was reading so this is a la nina year right so um, coral bleaching events have historically been linked to El Nino mm-hmm. events, which is typically bringing warmer currents down. Um, and so those warmer currents are heating up the oceans um, around coral reefs more than they would normally. So, so you get. Yeah, so the first one I see, it just says extreme warmth. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you get these extreme heat events yeah. in marine ecosystems, normally typically associated with. Um, El Nino but this is the first year that we've seen <coughs> coral bleaching associated with La Nina and what it was what this um, article was saying was that r- normally it would bring um, cooler currents but it's what it's happened with the rain gosh this is where I'm really struggling so what it's happened is that it's warmer currents down here, but you're getting cooler currents in some of the warmer areas. So like some of the lower latitude reefs or even islands and, and systems are experiencing cooler than normal waters. And that means that um, when we've got warmer than normal waters down here, there's a lot more moisture in the air. And then those cooler currents out where it should be norm- normally warmer it's driving wind, easterly winds, which is pushing that moisture onto eastern Australian shores Mm -hmm. and is causing these huge rain events. So it's all this, like, it's not not something that's specific to Australia and is happening here. This thing is happening, you know, hundreds of miles away, and um, but it's still causing ecological effects here. Yeah. Um, I've just found a... um a picture, actually, global picture. There you go, showing the um, yeah the cold water coming ac- coming across right away from South yeah. America and hitting uh, and in this shoreline and up Papua New Guinea. And it's those cooler that blue middle kind of mid latitude um, areas. That cool water is then making these easterly winds increase, which is pushing the moisture above Australia, which then creates low pressure. Cool pools, I think he called them, okay. which was pretty. I like that name. <laughs> um, There's um, yeah. what's his name, Craig Taylor, down in um, what's it called down at uh, Bass Point, Bass Rangers Bay, Shell Harbour. Mm-hmm. He tends to um, update everybody on the the weather patterns that are going on, and he's always on about the uh, cold fronts coming down from the north. There would be someone really interested, a climatologist, like somebody who knows about. Um, ocean climates and currents and stuff mm. that would be a really interesting person to talk to yeah um, no craig, craig works out of a dive shop down in, in shell harbour and he's, he's going to come on the show at some point where he's just had in the last couple of months he's been in and out of surgery god knows how many times now so he's getting 
getting himself better before he comes on the show. Aye, oh, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, he'll be good. Strong old boy. Mm. So um, now you've got the money. <laughs> what's the next step? What's what's uh, what's kicking off? So yeah, we are overwhelmed to have an extremely grateful and excited to have the the funding from Pure Ocean for our project. Um, so. This also forms part of my postdoctoral research fellowship, um, existing postdoctoral research fellowship at UTS. So the research that I will be doing over the next, um, couple of months will be looking at which kind of fat, I'm, I'm on a fat finding mission, essentially. Right. I'm going to find the fat that they like the most that helps them grow quicker and survive oh, fat f-a-t fat. i thought you said fact no i'm on a fat finding f-a-t okay. fat finding mission to find the optimal lipid cocktail or fat cocktail fatty cocktail to feed to the coral larvae um and it has to be one that um we can um or that might offer them some increase in resilience and survival so it's a very long experiment to do because you have to watch them through to a couple of months so that you can watch their survival rate um and this is going to be in collaboration with the australian institute of marine science national sea simulator up in townsville as well as visualizing the fats in the coral lipids some really cool colorful pictures of of like um, coral larvae about 100 microns which is like um a tenth of a millimeter Mm. long no that's not right about a millimeter, a hundred microns. Yeah, about a millimeter. Um, and yeah, so these larvae are about a millimeter long, so they're really, really small. So it's very difficult to to see any difference in them individually. So we visualize them under this um, amazing microscope facilities offered in by the Max Planck Institute in Bremen, Germany, with who this work will be in collaboration with as well. And, um, yeah, you get to, you, for that, you, you can actually see whole, all these different fatty cocktails, the effects on the structure and, um, the resilience of these larvae and the subsequent adults as well. So it's, it's cool. Yeah. Cool stuff. <laughs> so just to clarify, are you creating, you're not creating new corals, are you? You're not creating steroidal you kind of you're just giving them a boost at the start of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am giving them a boost at the start of life. Is exactly right. So that's a coral reproduction. It it goes into this massive bottleneck of survivorship. So mm. you get millions of coral larvae produced by a single coral colony. At the moment, one percent survive. So what we want to do is expand that bottleneck so that more survive, and. The work that, you know, CCOR and, and the reef restoration and adaptation program up in the Great Barrier Reef, some of the stuff that they're doing through that is amazing. And, and you know, it's an increased survivorship and it's great what they're doing. They've um, done a lot of the legwork that would see any success in, in the project that I'm involved in. So um, what we are trying to do is improve the success of them more from a um, feeding side of things. So... Um, with human babies, if you didn't feed them, 
not many would survive. Mm. Well, it's exactly the same yeah. for coral larvae. Um, and perhaps this is why we have this bottleneck. So can we improve survivorship by providing them with um, nutrients during those most vulnerable life stages mm. um, and supporting them in that way? They're, if we've got more baby corals, we've got abil- the ability to rebuild and restore degraded reef areas increased biodiversity of areas that have lost significant biodiversity as a result of things like coral bleaching events and mass mortality events or crown of thorns infections so mm-hmm. kind of thing. so um uh yeah so the whole this is a reef restoration initiative this is to go and as i was saying earlier this is going from a research at, a, at molecular scales, you know, lipid interactions and stuff and, and um, cellular biology. It's going from that to actual impactful reef restoration initi- initiatives. And that's the um, essential pathway that, um, uh, it, yeah, it's, a, it's an essential pathway to actually p- buying corals time mm. and helping them potentially survive changing climates. So um, another question I've been burning to ask is, if you if you take an, a location, I'm thinking back to my time in Papua New Guinea, you take a location that's overfished yes, and the corals uh, die off, mm-hmm. this fat-finding mission that you're doing now <laughs> um, with a positive outcome, could you actually regrow or restart a coral reef if it's been overfished? Absolutely. I mean, fish and and all these, um, you know, entire coral reefs, as I said, uh, these shopping centres where it only works if you get customers coming to buy the reefs, uh, mm. buy the um, the items in the shops, yeah. and think of the fish as being those customers. So you need customers, you need fish to support coral reefs, and just as the coral reefs support fish populations, so you need one without. In one as well as the other. So, yeah. um, but if you rebuild reef degraded reef areas, the fish will come back yeah. quite quickly. They're able, uh, much much easier for a fish to swim back into a reef than a coral to go and find a fish. Find a fish, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So we, I think we would see an increase in you know the fish that w- were lost from re- degraded reef areas. We would see those re-establishing um and that's the ultimate aim isn't it to re-establish and rebuild functional ecosystems functional coral reefs um and then hopefully that's where legislation can play a big role in managing the resources that marine areas provide like making sure we manage fish stocks and fishing activities um yeah. They did that in Indonesia a few years ago, didn't they? And yeah. um, it's, it works very well. I think it, is it Indonesia or Philippines where they do – I can't remember the country. Forgive me, guys, whoever's listening. But um, they, they close off particular locations for a period of – I think it's about three years. Okay. And you're not allowed to fish it. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, they, they did that in um, Thailand. They closed the beach, the beach hmm. uh, in Phuket. And they, uh, within weeks, saw shark populations coming back to the island. Hmm. So it shows you how, if given the chance, yeah. remove the humans, you can, if albeit temporarily, or reduce human interact- interactions, then you would be able to... Um, yeah, coral. Oh, sorry, 
marine ecosystems and other ecosystems would be able to rebuild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but the link between corals and human existence <laughs> it's a heavy one <laughs> uh as in evolutionarily or um well if if all corals die let's let, let's mm. kind of go down that route because it depends who you die. listen to but if all corals die yeah that would ultimately lead to probably the death of the oceans yeah yeah so yeah i imagine certainly beyond recognition changes beyond recognition 25 percent of marine life rely on coral reefs as a source of protection or perhaps living space or a source of food mm. um and so that's 25 percent of of marine organisms gone if you lose coral reefs or they have to find something alternative and then that affects other marine ecosystems right so if you lose coral reefs and then you lose that 25% of marine life that rely on it. What about the other 75% that rely on the fish that live on coral reefs for a source of food? And that's when you see the destabilization of entire reef, uh, entire ecosystems. Mm. And, um, yeah, it would be catastrophic. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> so what we got at the moment is the tiny scientist and a team. Um, hopefully. Um, recreating or bolstering those corals that are there already. Um, and oh, I tell you, um, the Great Barrier Reef moving south is that a is that a real thing or is it? Um, mm. um, so it's hard to it's you know it's one of those it's one of those unknown questions at the moment that we. Are we going to see a Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Sydney in the next five years? Nah, probably not. But might this, the mechanisms of this subtropical coral already coming down to a temperate area and surviving temperate regions, that's also unexpected. Not only that, but these fish that are associating with it and the crabs that are associating it are overwintering, which means surviving winter, Mm. which is, again, was unpredicted. (laughs) So... Potentially, um, we may see more species following suit and seeking refuge in Sydney or in coastal New South Wales and, and the, and higher latitudes. Mm. Um, but there are stories in high latitude reefs in Japan, for example, that aren't so positive, um, and don't, like, aren't, don't bode well for the existing ecosystems. Yeah. So it's not an answer. And really, we want to stabilize and rebuild existing systems, not relocate them. Yeah. Um, well, it just, I, it's something that crosses my mind every now and then because, you know, if you think rather than thinking in, you know, a couple of, couple of years, five, 10, 50 years, whatever, if we manage to sort it all out and we pass the 2050 mark and everything's tickety boo, mm. the world as she is on her own changes. Yeah. And, you know, two, three, four hundred years down the line. Yes. I, I can imagine there's a real possibility of, of, you know, what we know as the GBR now migrating. Yeah, yeah. Two, three hundred years, I yeah, I would expect to see some difference in the uh, range of, of the Great Barrier Reef or existence <laughs> of the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. Um, I don't know if humans would be here in two, three hundred years, though. To no, see it. <laughs> I'm not sure either. No, no. Uh, the current 
you know, right, of climate changing impacts. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not going to be here, so. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> I'll ask my daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So if people want to help out, how are they going to help out with um, with your research? Oh, help out with – you can help protect reef systems from your home. So making informed decisions about the fish that you eat is a really easy way to help sustain fish um, and, um, you know, the associated ecosystems, um, fish populations and the associated ecosystems. So, um, the MSC, that little blue fish symbol, mm-hmm. looking for the Marine Stewardship Council symbol on fish that you select at supermarkets is a really easy way to, um, uh, protect and, and, you know, um, that's not that's not to, that's not to get it confused with the dolphin friendly symbols. It's it's actually the same kind the of same, same thread. Um, okay. So, for example, so the dolphin friendly ones would be sustainable fish practices, which is what the Marine Stewardship Council supports. So that's essentially any fish with that blue symbol, that blue and white fish symbol on it, has been sustainably caught, um, and that means it preserves future fish populations. Mm. Um, so that's a really important way, uh, a really easy way to make informed and a consumer um, contribution to the future of, of um, marine ecosystems. That's one way. Uh, sun cream is something that I've, I've not really touched on, but it's another really, really easy way for people to um, protect coral reefs. So sun cream is a chemical. Mm. And if you put sun cream on and you jump straight in the water, first of all, it washes off straight off you straight away and offers you no protection. But it also is leaching all those chemicals straight into the reef or into the marine area that you mm. are and killing killing corals. And marine, um, sorry, uh, sun cream does uh, harm corals. So that's another way. And um, plastics is, plastic pollution is one of the biggest th- environmental threats of our time. A recent study by University of Newcastle showed that we eat a credit card's worth of plastic a week, which I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound too tasty. No. So um, making um, responsible decisions about plastic, for example, re- reducing, reusing, recycling, that, that you do use there's so many compostable options nowadays. Um, and one of the biggest factors of that is um, the clothing industry. So um, 33% of marine microplastics come from washed clothing. So um, making um, important decisions about the clothing that you buy, um, reducing the clothing that you buy or, or buying recycled clothing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um those are all really, really easy everyday ways to get involved in coral conservation. Um, but to more directly get involved, then you can attend local ble- beach cleanup events. Uh, um, they run most beaches often run them. If they're not, start your own. Then really easy to do. You grab a bag and you walk up on the beach and you pick up rubbish. Um, so that's a really cool way. And as well, you find some amazing, interesting items. Um, and... To directly get involved in research is also possible. It's um, often, you know, we have volunteers who come to help us with research projects. Um, financial support is always required, but, you know, I'd much rather give someone an experience in it than, um, 
you know the whole funding side of it but mm. um certainly getting involved in citizen shi- citizen science um initiatives like the Australian uh, microplastics assessment project osmap they are awesome and they do some amazing citizen science programs um monitoring microplastics on australian beaches mm-hmm. so there are a number of citizen science projects out there um visiting uh, uh, if when you're on holiday visiting sustainable um or uh ecotouristic Places? Operators. Operators. There you yeah. go. Yeah, operators. Like Big Blue Conservation <laughs> and Big Blue. Um, yeah, making a, a informed decision about where you're going and the kind of um, whether the, the uh, tourism operator or hotel or whatever and that you get resort that you're going to has sustainable practices in mind. There might um, be a new sustainable one rocking up on some of your cow lack in the future. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there's really, really, there are ways that people get involved so that it becomes less out of sight and more and less out of mind. And mm. it is, you know, ingrained in your everyday decisions. It's really easy to do. Mm. And it's, uh, I mean, um, something that we might be able to put into, yeah, become a scientist. Um, <laughs> I haven't got the brains to do it, so I'll leave it to you. Um, but maybe we can put the link in the show notes to maybe a couple of pictures of those corals Corals, that you're keeping your eyes out for and you know because we've got a lot of divers especially around sydney and going further south into melbourne um and we can you know if if they're snapping shots and finding photos then surely you can let you know where it is absolutely yeah Mm. if you see the coral um there's different uh kind of some color different color morphs so that um don't always go off color and as well color is really difficult Mm. um whether you're 10 or 20 meters underwater, the color obviously changes quite yeah. dramatically. So yeah. don't go from color. So, but they, there is nothing similar to it. So if you see a coral mm. that it's like a branching mini tree kind of form, then, um, that is probably Impossilopora or Possilopora alicia. I still can't say it even after two yeah, years. Yeah, no. So there's two <laughs> different ways, and it really depends on who you talk to um, and where they're from. Whether they say Possilopora or Possilopora, mm. but they're the same thing, yeah. and it doesn't matter. Everybody out there, it does not matter how you say it. <laughs> they are the same thing. It's fine. <laughs> Well, we'll get a couple of good pictures and, and people can get on it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, super geeks in, in Sydney Viz and that kind of thing. They'll yeah. be keen as mustard to jump on that one, I think. But even snorkelers. So there's yeah. some really shallow colonies of them in Shelley Bay and Manly. Um, the, the, and I'm sure there's elsewhere. So yeah, even snorkelers, even if you don't dive and you snorkel. Happy days. Cool beans. Um, well, I think we'll round it up for today, Jen. Um, how can people, uh, you got your Twitter account and all that kind of thing? People can follow I have a what Twitter you're doing. Twitter account at Tiny Scientist because I'm tiny. <laughs> a tiny scientist. <laughs> um, you can contact me on Twitter as probably the best um, way, but also through email if you have any questions or any, um, if you want to get involved at all, at jennifer.matthews at uts.edu.au. Mm. And any big corporations out there, if you want to throw in thousands and thousands, you can do that as well. <laughs> Jen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and my mind is blown. I feel like I've gone back to school. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope I hope blown in a good way. Oh, yeah, Not definitely. overwhelmed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. We'll keep an eye on what you're doing, and uh, you can give us some updates later in the year. How's that? Absolutely. Yeah. Happy days. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye for now. This 
is Scuba Goat. Under the Sea. The podcast for the inquisitive diver. Wow.